God, our Father, Lord, we praise you and we thank you. We, Lord, rejoice as we consider you high and lifted up and seated upon your throne. Oh, Lord, we know that you have the whole world in your hands. That, God, you have, by your mighty providence, brought to pass all of your good purposes till this day and shall see them through to the end. We are so grateful to be included among the number of those who have the forgiveness of sins through the redemption that is in our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, in him do we trust. In him do we put our faith. In him we have joy unspeakable and full of glory. And we're very grateful. Oh, Lord, we ask that you would help us to grow in our faith, help us to grow in our knowledge and understanding of Christ and his kingdom, and, Lord, all of your purposes in the world. We ask today, as we look more closely into the scripture, that you would help us to see and gain insight even a little clearer. We thank you for the privilege that we have to gather in this place with all of your holy people. And we ask, God, that you would be glorified in all that we say and all that we do. Indeed, we have gathered to worship you, to sing praises to your name, and to hear from your very word, God. We thank you for this privilege. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Okay, so that brings us to the last few verses of the book of First Thessalonians. Today we're starting on uh, our new handout, page 64. And uh, we are coming to the end of verses 20, 19 through 22. Last week we discussed those verses at length. And um, there Paul is giving practical instructions to the Thessalonian church. <clears throat> Excuse me. And he says in verse 19, Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophetic utterances, but examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good and abstain from every form of evil. And so we talked uh, about the fact that the word of God was central among the life of the church and that regardless of what position your church may hold in practice in regard to the gift of prophecy and the delivery of the word of God, that the word of God was to be held in high esteem and that it was to be fully obeyed. And uh, I was recommending that regardless of what position your church may hold, that you worship there in subjection to the pastoral leadership. And, um, of course, I gave some very practical instruction about how if you had a disagreement in that area how you should approach the pastoral leadership. And uh, so that brought us to the end of our lesson last week. And we had yet to deal with the phrase there where Paul ends that uh, short section by saying, abstain from every form of evil. So this then is at the top of page 64 in your handouts. 
It is important here to see how this phrase is tied into the idea which precedes it, that of examining everything carefully and to hold fast to that which is good. So if, if you're with me, looking at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 19 through 22, the phrase in verse 22, abstain from every form of evil, is actually tied to this idea of uh, not despising prophetic utterances, but instead examining them very carefully, holding fast to that which is good and abstaining from every form of evil. So in your examining, if you will, of the preaching and teaching of the word of God, we are to abstain from every form of evil, not only in evil thoughts that might be put forth by a teacher, but also the practices which they would lead to. So in context, then, the idea is to examine prophetic utterances, and if they come in any form to be evil or lead you to be evil, they are to be rejected. Thus, abstain from every form of evil. Another way to say this is, be careful to examine everything you are taught. Listen to and obey that which is good, but reject and do not obey any teaching which presents or promotes evil in any form. Surely this is a rule of great practical importance in Christian life. It is important for a Christian's maturity for them to learn how to discern good from evil, not only in the practice of daily life, but also in hearing and listening to Bible teachers. Now, I'm sorry, now with the accessibility of media, this is especially important considering how much error there is in modern Bible teaching, seeing that so many Christian pastors have such a low view of the Word of God, and that the design of so many is to tickle the ears with cleverly invented stories rather than a well-studied and clear exposition of biblical text. Paul's warning to Timothy sheds light on this valuable rule. Second Timothy chapter 4, verse 3 and 4, this is where Paul is saying to Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus at his appearing and his coming, Preach the word, right, he says there at the beginning of chapter 4. Be instant in season and out of season, right? He says, convince, reprove, and exhort with great patience and careful instruction. Why? Verse 3, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and we'll turn aside the myths. Paul's saying, this is going to happen. The time is going to come, and I would add, is now upon us. Amen. Right? When people will do what? They'll heap to themselves teachers teaching what? Their own desires. Teaching the things they want to hear. Tell us pleasant things. Stop confronting us with the Holy One of Israel. Are you with me? And so, of course, greedy men are willing to line up and exploit these and do that very thing. And rather than preaching and teaching the true word of God, instead they suit their message to the desires of fallen people. And in so doing, they turn away from the truth and unto myths. And that's why I like to use Peter's terms, cleverly invented stories. 
Beware. When 50% of the content of the preacher's message is nothing but a bunch of stories he made up. For the sake of illustration. Right. We've come to hear the word of God. We've come to hear the pronouncement of God himself. The holy God. The creator of the ends of the earth. We haven't come to be entertained. We've come to be instructed by God himself. Amen? Therefore, the preacher of God's word is to be a faithful preacher who is expositing the biblical text for us. He's saying, this is what God is saying. And very carefully and with much study and toil, dividing the word of truth rightly for us. Amen? He keeps us focused on the truth, not on the myths. Right? And God forbid that the word of God should tickle our ears. That it does not do. Instead, it convicts our conscience. Because our hearts are what? Deceitful and desperately wicked. (laughs) Amen? And the word of God brings conviction to our hearts. It doesn't give us warm fuzzies, if you will, all the time. Surely there are great and precious promises in the word that are very comforting and consoling. But they are always delivered in the balance of God's spirit with reproof and correction and exhortation. Amen? Therefore, let all Christians be careful to examine what they are being taught and to be full of care to make sure is in accord with the truth of God's word. Amen? That brings us to verse 23 and 24. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you, and he also will bring it to pass. Now I want to point this out to you one more time. At the end of every chapter in 1 Thessalonians, there is a reference to the parousia. Even in the end of chapter 5, here in verse 23, he makes again a reference to the parousia, where he says, without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's a constant theme through the book of 1 Thessalonians. And even after Paul has gone through great lengths in chapter 4 and chapter 5 to explain to us details of the parousia, he still yet has it in his mind in the context as he's speaking to these people. But here he says, Now may the God of peace. These now are Paul's final remarks in light of all that has been said. Here, as is often the case in Paul's closing of a letter, he refers to God as the God of peace. Consider that the very nature of God, which is peace, that blessed virtue and fruit of the Spirit, which is sound tranquility and calmness of conscience, which only God can impart, where all is at rest with nothing to hinder, trouble, or harm. Have you thought about what peace really is? It is an interesting thing to consider what peace really is, especially in the biblical context. This peace can only come through Jesus Christ, for no other remedy can quiet the conviction of sin except that one 
honestly and openly confess their personal sins and repent and trust Christ's atonement to be the sufficient means by which they can be wiped away. When someone acknowledges that God has forgiven them because of Christ's glorious work, true and lasting peace is at hand, but not until. Amen? Amen. What is it that imparts peace? Is it not reconciliation with God? For until you're reconciled with God, He is at enmity with you. Amen? You may not have thought yourself to be at enmity with God, but let me tell you, He sees Himself as enmity with you until you're found in Christ. And it is not until that time that peace can come because peace is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. Peace is something that comes by the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. And that doesn't happen until one has repented of their sins and trusted Christ. Amen? And that kind of peace is true and lasting peace. But he says here, May the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. May your spirit, soul, and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you will, this is a a, a prayer of Paul's. He's in these words asking God for something. What is that? That he would sanctify you, the church. Here now see Paul's prayer for these Thessalonians for the completion of their sanctification. You may recall he had prayed something very similar in chapter 3, verse 13, and then mentioned in chapter 4, verse 3, that it was something very, uh, that it was sanctification uh, that was God's will for them. If you look back in chapter 3, in verse 13, there Paul says, So that he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Isn't it interesting that in these two places, one at the end of chapter 3 and one at the end of chapter 5, where Paul mentions the parousia, in both places he has this thought in mind that God would establish them in holiness before himself that God himself would establish the church in holiness before himself and here Paul says that he himself would sanctify you entirely and that your spirit and soul and body may be preserved complete without blame and the idea is that when Christ comes again the church is there without fault The church is there without blame. The church is there in holiness before God. And that this is God's work. Here again, notice Paul's emphasis on God himself performing this work of making us holy. And this he will do entirely, that is to say, completely and in every way. So much is this the case that he refers to our whole nature as mankind. May your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete. So as to say that his desire is that we become completely and totally sanctified without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now some try to use this passage to make a distinction between the spirit and the soul and thereby to make an argument for the trichotomist's three-part nature view of man as opposed to a dichotomist view 
two-part nature. Sorry to disappoint you, <clears throat> but I'm not going to enter into the fray. <laughs> it is obvious that this text is not Paul's attempt to define the nature of man here, but rather to speak of his desire to see Christians entirely and completely sanctified. Here Paul is concluding all that has been said in this glorious letter with a prayer for the completed and sanctified process of Christian maturity, which he so zealously is trying to carry out through, the, through his ministry and service to the churches. So what's the point? The point is when Paul says, may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved complete and sanctified entirely, he's trying to say that he would prefer and request of God that you be completely and entirely without blame and without fault, sanctified and ready to be received by Christ as his pure and holy bride. Amen? His point is, I don't want God to miss one little bit of your sanctification, but I want you completely and wholly sanctified. You with me? Surely this isn't a discourse on the nature of man. Would you agree? It's simply a comment about how completely Paul wants the sanctification process to be. Are you with me? So, if you will, um, the trichotomous-dichotomous debate is one for the theology books, not one for an expository lesson through the book of 1 Thessalonians. Are you with me? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Same with the New Testament gift of prophecy, which is what we were on last week, and I didn't enter into the fray on that either. Because if you have tried to study the New Testament gift of prophecy, let me tell you, it is no small endeavor. It is very much like a study of eschatology. <laughs> okay? It is a huge, massive study that requires the examination of a whole lot of texts and a whole lot of time spent in study to really get a grasp on what all the issues are. Yes, sir? Without jumping into the fray, can you at least say... The three, what the three parts and the two parts are? Like, is the dichotomous soul and flesh, or? Trichotomous would say that man has a three-part nature. Spirit, soul, and body. Okay. A dichotomous would say that man has a two-part nature. The material and immaterial part of man, or if you will, spirit and soul are interchangeable for the immaterial part of man, and the body is the material part of man. Thank you. <laughs> Clear as mud? Yeah. Okay. All right. Okay. <laughs> okay. So, think about now what Paul is saying. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved complete and without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Right? Then he says this, Faithful is he who calls you, and he also will bring it to pass. So, my question to you, class, whose work is sanctification? God's. God's. Right. Amen. How do we know that? Because that's what the Bible says. Right here. In 1 Thessalonians 5.24. Who is going to bring to pass your complete and whole sanctification. 
God is. Okay, now, that doesn't mean that we have no part in it. Okay, we do have a part in it. Okay, but the, 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 the fact of the matter is, it is primarily God's work. And he's the one who's going to bring it to pass, even if you're like stubborn Jonah. Are you with me? In the case of Jonah, God's going to get his gospel to those people in Nineveh, regardless of how stubborn Jonah wants to be. Are you with me? He could have just taken the highway, right? Instead of the low way. <laughs> but one way or the other, God's going to get his prophet there and the gospel's going to be preached and people are going to be forgiven. Amen? Well, so it is with your sanctification. If you are the object of God's love, right? You are going to wind up holy and completely sanctified and without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ because God is the one who has called you to such and he is the faithful one who will bring it to pass. Amen? You understand my reasoning right out of the text? Here Paul emphatically states that the work of sanctification is an act of God. Because God is faithful and the one who calls you, he is also the one who will complete the process of sanctification on earth before you meet the Lord in the heavens at his return, when you shall be finally glorified. You understand we, we break salvation down into three parts generally. We call it salvation, sanctification, and glorification. Okay? Now, to be sure, sanctification and glorification are both also components of salvation. Okay? But in this context, we speak of it as what happened when you came to Christ and were born again. Or should I say, when you were born again and came to Christ. Okay? And then the process of sanctification began, and then ultimately that's going to culminate in glorification. And that all three of those are wholly the work of God. In other words, God is the one from first to last who ordains all of that and brings it to pass through his providence. Okay? Even though you are the subject of it. And you're a subject that makes free moral choices. Right? Inasmuch as God has given you freedom to make those choices. Right? Of course, that's a debate for another day. But the point is just that it's God's work from first to last. So it is with sanctification. Okay? And even though, if, if you will, Paul is one of God's means to sanctify the Thessalonian church, but through his ministry. Right? It is God who is in and through Paul bringing that to pass. Are you with me? So, <clears throat> ultimately, when we think about sanctification, as the scripture affirms so clearly right here, we see it as God's work. It's an act of God that you would be sanctified. Now, this is tremendously reassuring to those of us who are daily at war with sin. Amen? Amen. Nevertheless, the scripture makes it clear again and again and again that this is God's work. God is faithful, Paul reasons. He began the good work of salvation in you, and he also will bring it to pass. That is, he will sanctify you entirely and completely so that when Jesus returns again, you will be established without blame before him. This glorious promise is repeated elsewhere in Scripture. For example, in Jude 24, there it says, Now to him 
that is God, who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory blameless with great joy. Now, how will God make you stand in the presence of his glory? Blameless and with great joy. Now, who is making you stand in the presence of his glory? God is. God is making you stand blameless. How does he do that? Through the work of Christ. Amen? Because of what Christ has done. Remember the doctrine of imputation? Right? God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Our sin was imputed to Christ. He was punished for it, paid the penalty in full. Christ's righteousness was imputed to us and we are accounted as holy and completely righteous in the sight of God. Amen? And so, if you will, through this means, God will cause us to stand in the presence of his glory blameless and with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. Amen. (laughs) The same thought is repeated in Colossians chapter 1, verse 22, where Paul there says, Yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death, that is Christ's, in order to present you before him, how? Holy Holy and blameless and beyond reproach. God has reconciled you through the fleshly body of Christ through death. In order to do what? To present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. You see that? Now, it's God who does this work, and he does it through the means of Christ. Amen? Or again, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, same kind of a thought as Paul has here in 1 Thessalonians 5. He's writing there in the very beginning of the book of 1 Corinthians. He says to them, So that you are not lacking in any gift awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, through whom you were called into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. And there Paul's saying the same thing. At the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, right? God is going to confirm you to the end, blameless, until that day. Why? Because God is faithful. God is faithful to fulfill the calling wherewith he has called you and cause you to be blameless before his presence. Amen? This should be tremendously reassuring to us Christians who are at war with sin. Amen? So I say, take heart, Christian. Although it may seem your war with sin be ever at hand and so many times to dominate us, know for sure that he who began the good work will be faithful to complete it. Your final salvation is not in your hand to complete, but in the strong hand of God. As it says in Philippians 1, verse 6, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Amen? Amen. Who began the good work? God. Who will be faithful to complete it? God. God. When will he do it? In the day of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen? Or John 6 and verse 39. And this is the will of him who sent me, that of all he has given me, I lose nothing. But what? Raise it up on the last day. Who's not going to lose you? Christ. 
Right, in this context. Christ is not going to lose you. Instead, he's going to do what? Raise you up on the last day. Right? What about John chapter 10 and verse 27 and following? Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Listen. And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. Amen? Who's going to keep you? Christ. Why? Because no one can snatch you out of his hand. He wants to confirm. Verse 29. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Amen? Amen. Bible's full of promises like that. That's just a few. Amen? So I'm saying take heart. Take heart you who frequently doubt if you're even saved because your heart is so wickedly sinful at times. Take heart. God is going to present you before him without blame, beyond reproach, and with great joy at the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Know it for sure. We've seen it just this morning here in God's word. Amen? Amen. Okay, that brings us to verses 25 through 28. These are Paul's concluding remarks. He says, Brethren, pray for us. Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. I adjure you by the Lord to have this letter read to all the brethren. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. So Paul says here, Brethren, pray for us. See here Paul's affection and sincere desire for these Christians not only to embrace Paul, but to join him in the toil by praying for his prosperity in ministry. Paul is frequently seen in Scripture coveting the prayers of his hearers. I listed just a few there. He's frequently asking for prayer. And uh, when you consider the things that Paul was up against, (laughs) um, it's rather obvious that he is enjoining the prayers of all the faithful to pray for him. Amen? So he says to the Thessalonians, pray for us. Of course, us here is who? Paul and Silas and Timothy, right? They're the us. Remember all the way back to chapter 1? They're the us. They're the us and the we, right? Okay. Uh, So, verse 26 says, Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. Paul here exhorts the church to express their sincere affection to one another when greeting. This kiss was in that day much like a handshake in ours. Okay? So what's Paul saying? He's just saying greet one another warmly. That's what he's saying. Of course, in their context, that meant a kiss. Okay? I suppose you could get into all kinds of arguments about, you know, how do you kiss on the cheek? Do you kiss on the nose? Do you, you know, how do you kiss? Where do you kiss? When do you kiss? <clears throat> Is it even appropriate to kiss in your culture? I'm not going to enter into that fray either. (laughs) Verse 27, I adjure you by the Lord to have this letter read to all the brethren. Here Paul's desire to have everyone in the church informed by all that has been said here. The phrase, I adjure you, is a strong exhortation for them to see to it that everyone has a chance to hear what Paul has said 
to his newly found church. You know, this is uh, arguably Paul's first letter to the churches. And it quickly became a practice in the early church for them to have these letters from the apostles and to frequently read them. And if you will, that's kind of how the New Testament kind of came to pass over time as there began to be a larger and larger collection of these letters from the apostles. They would actually read them every Sunday morning. This, this would be their, their, uh, their text of, of Scripture. And this became for them uh, uh, the direct revelation of God. Interesting thought that Paul has here. Have everybody read this letter. See here the origins of the church having a New Testament. Are you with me? And Paul is adjuring them to make sure all the Christians get to hear this word. Amen? You see that? Yeah, it wasn't just for a select few. Right. We shouldn't keep the word bound up in the Latin language for a thousand years. Would you agree? Doesn't the Bible say here, let all the brethren hear it? Verse 28, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Here is a glorious and wonderful benediction. If we all but had the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ with us, we would in fact be the most content and fulfilled people of all. In fact, all Christians have this blessing and in the end shall prove to be eternally and gloriously content and fulfilled, evermore to live in God's presence, in the Savior, happy and blessed, world without end. Well, that brings us to the end of 1 Thessalonians. It's been a great... It's been a great privilege for me, and I know you, you all have been so encouraging. Some have said um, to me, oh, man, we're really sorry we're not going to have class in the summertime. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, so am I. <laughs> but if I kept up that pace all year round every year, there wouldn't be much of me left, <laughs> let me tell you. So um, i, I got to do what I can do, and um, so... We break for the summertime. Even though I would still like to be here teaching, um, need to take a break. Mm-hmm. So we have a little bit of time left, and I want to address something for tonight's question and answer session. You have this little chart on the back of uh, page 65. This is a chart that discusses a chronology of the text in Matthew chapter 24. Now, if you will, the text in the book of Mark for the Olivet Discourse is, is Mark chapter 13. It's almost identical to this text. There's very little difference. In fact, many would argue that Matthew's text, of course, Mark, Mark was the earlier text. Many would argue that Matthew's text, the main source, was the book of Mark. In fact, that's obvious. Uh, nevertheless, what I'm saying is this chronology that's here in the book of Matthew can also be found in the Olivet Discourse in the book of Mark. Okay? Yes, sir? That last box is totally black on I'll tell you what it says. Ready? It says... Okay. 
Well, all right. So the, the second to the last one says Christ's return at the top. And then in the middle it says power and great glory. And then at the bottom it says rapture, verse 30 through 31. Everybody got that? Then the last box says at the top, the wrath of God. And then right below that, day of the Lord. (coughs) And then right below that, verse 36 through 41. Okay, now, hear what I'm saying, okay? Just look at the top right here. There's actually three different charts here, okay? There's this top one across the top. Then there's a little chart here giving some explanation. There's a chart here giving some explanation. My point is, look at this in the big picture. From the text of Matthew, starting in chapter 24, verses 4 and following, all the way to verses 41, I'm saying there's a chronology of events that Jesus is giving in the text. Are you with me? You understand what I'm trying to say here? These events are happening in the text in this chronology. You understand what I mean by that? This, then that, then this, then that. Okay? It's important to note what these two little charts say right here. I'm not going to confuse you with a bunch of that this morning. But I want you to go home and look at this. And I think it's going to uh, spark some questions. Okay? But, but basically what these two lower charts say is just that verses 10 through 14 are just an interlude describing what's happening during the period of, that's happening in verse 9. So he says in verse 9, such and such is going to happen. Verses 10 through 14 is an interlude where he's describing what that time is like. Are you with me? Then over here in chart B... Verses 15 through 28 are actually an interlude describing what the period about verses 9 through 14 are like. Okay? So he's just kind of building one on the other and describing what those events are like. Okay? However, that does not break up the flow of chronology going on from there, going on from verse 28. The chronology continues. Even though 10 through 14 is a description of what's happening during verse 9, and 11 through 28 is a description of what's happening during verses 9 through 14. Okay? Now, if you're confused by all that, just wipe that aside for a minute. Get your Bible, and let's look at the text. Many of you might wonder why I'm so confident when I'm giving you my position about post-tribulation rapture and all that kind of thing. And um, I keep trying to tell you that I've developed my convictions first from the Olivet Discourse, which I believe is the backbone of prophecy. Jesus, they're asking Jesus this question, chapter 24, verse 1, they're sitting on the Mount of Olives and they're, they're looking across and there's the temple buildings, okay? If you've ever been there, it's just so prominent. Right now, the Dome of the Rock sits there, and and that's very prominent right now. Um, But nevertheless, the Temple Mount is all right there for you to see. You can't miss it. Right across from the Mount of Olives, Temple Mount, right? Well, there, during this day day and time, is Herod's Temple, 
Okay? Massive, gorgeous, beautiful, amazing feat of architectural design and build and all of that. The thing is just unbelievable. And they're sitting there looking at it, and, and um, they're remarking about it. And Jesus says, do you see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another which will not be torn down. Now think what Jesus is saying to these Jewish disciples. This temple, this glorious thing, all your, what your fathers have worshipped and followed for so many years, even the very temple of the living God, Jesus is saying, guess what? The whole thing is coming down. It's going to be a pile of rubble. So you might think that would catch their attention. Amen? Well, it did. And so they say, verse 3, As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things happen, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So here's Jesus' disciples coming to him and saying, Tell us what, when these things are going to happen, and what's, what's it going to be like? What will be the sign of your coming, and, and what, what will be the, the signs of the end of the age? Okay, so their question to Jesus is, tell us about the last days. Tell us about the end times. Of course, they think that's going to happen right there. They think Christ is going to rise up and overcome the Romans and set up his kingdom right then and there. They, have, they don't understand that there's going to be right the, the parentheses of the church age. They don't understand that between the time he's talking to them and the time that these things are happening, it's going to be at least 2,000 years. Okay? Nevertheless, Jesus proceeds to answer their question. Okay? When he does so, I want you to notice the chronological indicators in his text. For example, he says uh, a certain amount of things will happen. And then verse 9, he says, then. You see that? Mm -hmm. Then. This will happen. Verse 10. At that time. Right? This will happen. Right? Verse 14, then the end will come, right? He's going on through the text. Um, verse 23, then, right? Verse 29, but immediately after the tribulation of those days, right? Verse 30, and then, right? So Jesus is saying this is going to happen, then that's going to happen, then this is going to happen, then that's going to happen. You follow me? Okay, so just real quick, let's go through the text here. He begins to answer their question. What will be the sign of your coming? When will these things happen? What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered and said to them, verse 4, See to it that no one misleads you. Okay, first thing. I'm going to tell you all about the end times, he says, but I don't want you to be misled about the end times. I'm going to tell you what the signs of my coming are. But I don't want you to be misled about them. Okay? It's very significant and extremely important, that first verse there. But he goes on, verse 5 and following. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will mislead many. You will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See to it that you're not frightened, for those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and in various places there will be famines and earthquakes. Notice what he says. He says in verse 6, you'll be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. He's saying, look, these things have to happen, but what? That is not the end. Okay? Significant. 
Because in verse 14, he's going to say, then the end will come. All right? You understand? There's a chronology here. So when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, don't be alarmed. That's not the end. Okay? He goes on. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. See, here's these wars and rumors of wars. It's going to happen. Nations are going to fight. They're going to, they're going to, there's going to be very, uh, famines and earthquakes. But all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. Okay? Now, I explained this to you once earlier, but I'm going to tell you again. Many of the things that apocalyptic verses of Scripture tell us about the character of, uh, and nature of events that are happening at the time of the end also characterize the entire church age. Are you with me? But what's happening is it's like a snowball that's gathering <laughs> momentum and weight and clutter as it bounces down the mountainside. And when it gets down to the bottom, guess what? It's real big. And it's, it's carrying with it a lot of force. Okay? And so it is with these climactic events at the time of the end. Okay? Wars and rumors of wars and famines and earthquakes. Okay, and that's characteristic throughout the church age. That's happening now and then in various times and places. But it's like a big snowball. It's gaining force. The earthquakes are on the rise. The famines are on the rise. The, the wars and the rumors of wars are on the rise. Okay, through the course of history, I mean, imagine the wars that have taken place in the last century are massive, huge devastation beyond anything that's happened in years prior. Are you with me? All of that, it's, it's, gaining, it's gaining ground. It's gaining speed. Okay? But what Jesus is describing here is the time just before the end. Okay? And he's, he's going to culminate all of this, and he's going to explain it to us in the text. So notice in verse 8, he says, But all these things are merely the beginning of birth pains. Okay? So you know that you at least have to see all of these things happening. Wars, rumors of wars, famines, earthquakes, all of that kind of thing has to be going on. Why? Because these are the signs of his coming and of the end of the age. Okay? All you have to do is open your eyes. What's going on? Wars, rumors of wars, famines, earthquakes. Right? Why do we have famines like this? Man, we got people on the face of the earth now numbering in the billions Right? Very much different from the time that this was spoken. You understand? But with the increase of people comes the increase for needy mouths. And with the increase of needy mouths, guess what? Shortage of food. Especially when people who have lots of food are real stingy. Right? So, going on. Verse 9. He says, then. Okay? These are merely the beginning of birth pangs. Then. What? They will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you and you will be hated by all nations because of my name. And, and when you go through that tribulation, uh, now, now here the word for tribulation, he's not referring specifically to the great tribulation, although that's in view, if you will, because that is also part of the tribulation and persecution that he's about to describe. However, the, the, it's, scholars would say that this this reference here is to the general tribulation that the believer faces throughout the process of Christian suffering, Christian life. <laughs> However, he says, 
They're going to deliver you to tribulation and kill you, and you'll be hated by all nations because of my name. So when he gets to verse 10 and he says, at that time, now what's he doing? Well, he says, there's going to be this time of persecution and hatred that you endure. And he says, at that time, it's going to look like this. That's why I'm telling you that verses 10 through 14 are an interlude describing what's going on during the time of verse 9. Are you with me? So he says, at that time, many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. When? When you are persecuted and killed and hated by all nations. At that time, many people are going to fall away and betray and hate one another. Okay? Paul refers to this in 2 Thessalonians as the apostasy. It's a great falling away that comes at the very time of the end. Okay? Very significant event. On your chart there it's the third box over falling away apostasy okay he goes on many false prophets will arise and mislead many when at that time at what time at the time that you're persecuted and killed and hated by all nations people are going to betray and hate one another and turn away from the faith false prophets are going to arise and deceive many people okay Because lawlessness is increased, most people love will grow cold. But the one who endures till the end, he will be saved. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. So what's he saying? He said, well, there's going to be a time of persecution and killing and hatred for you, my disciples. Right? When that happens, many people are going to fall away from the faith. They're going to betray and hate one another. And many false prophets are going to deceive many people. And because of the increase of sin and wickedness in the world, listen, most people's love will grow cold. Now, can you see that happening all around you? Right? It's true. It characterizes the whole age of the church. But at the very time before Christ's return, this is going to be intensified. Okay? And during this time of great persecution and killing and being hated by all nations because of the name of Christ, let me tell you, people's love is going to grow cold. He says in other places, Father will betray children, children their parents, brother their sister. And that people are going to be turning away from the faith. There is going to be a huge falling away at the time of the end. Okay? It's a purging. It's a purging of the church. Okay, it's a cleansing. Yes, I, can't, I can't help but ask the way of that. When you talked about on the base, from, on the C point on page 65, about faithful is he who called you and he will also bring it to pass, how can we have an apostasy and a security in our salvation? How can you have apostasy and have security of salvation? Exactly. So who falls away? Well, obviously, who falls away? And and furthermore, is their apostasy not valid proof that they're not truly saved? Yeah. Right. What what is the greatest evidence that we have of an apostate? Their apostasy. Are you with me? So, if you will, that's an argument for the doctrine of salvation. And uh, that is a component of the, the teaching of eternal security. 
So in other words, you know, one of the questions when you're arguing eternal security on both sides, trying to understand what the Bible says, is what about apostasy? And, and typically people who don't believe in eternal security will bring up the, the uh, texts of Scripture that talk about apostasy and say, see, here's people turning away from the faith. Well, what's happening is, is that people are professing. They're mere professors, not true believers. And they attach themselves to the church and to the faith for whatever reason they've done it, right? But what happens, Jesus says, what happens when persecution comes? I'm thinking now of the parable of the sower, the seed that falls along the rocks, and it doesn't take root. And as soon as the sun, uh, the heat of the sun comes, what happens? They wither and quickly fall away. And his point is, is that what? They can't, they can't handle the, the heat of the sun. Why? Because they have no root, right? And so, uh, okay, but I'm done chasing that. So I'm happy to answer that in, in another context. Um, so we're down to verse 14. Okay, now look what he said. He said that there's going to be this time of the beginning of birth pangs, okay, which I'm going to suggest to you, ouch, sorry, I got a bum knee. It's going on right here. The culmination and... The culmination and fulfillment of that text of Scripture, verses 5 through 8, is going on during the first three and a half years of the 70th week of Daniel. Okay? Just my opinion. But kind of so you can follow what I'm thinking in my mind as I read this to you. And he says, This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. I am saying that during that time, there's going to be a culmination of gospel preaching to all the nations that will be unlike it ever was before. Even as it is now, it's like a snowball (laughs) gathering impact. And as the years go by, the church is mobilizing and the church is preaching and the gospel is going out to all the nations. And each successive generation is making more and more progress as time goes on. Especially now with the increase of media, man, that thing is exploding. Okay, it's exploding. There are things happening in missions that the people who study that are scratching their heads saying, what in the world is happening here? Just in the last 20 years, there, there are now more Christians in the nation of China alone than there are in the entire West. The whole base, the whole base for Christian missionary and Christian missions work has shifted from the West to the East. So now, there, now the whole movement is, is, is the, the, the sway of where all the power of the movement is coming from the east and not so much from the west. Another, another argument for another day. <laughs> but, but the point is just that you know, things are happening very quickly in the mobilization of, of world gospel. Well, this is what Jesus says. This gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then what? Then the end will come. What end? The second coming of Christ. The end he's about to describe to us in verses 29 through 31. Okay? So why does he say then the end will come, but then he doesn't talk about that until verse 29? That's because verses 15 through 28 are another interlude. Describing what? Describing what's going on during the time, verses 9 through 14. 
So when, when, when they're delivering you to tribulation and killing you and hating you because of my name, and many are falling away and betraying and hating one another, and false prophets are arising and dis- misleading many, and increased sin and wickedness is causing people's love to grow cold, but there's great need to endure to the end. Why? And what's going on there? Because of what he's about to describe in verses 15 through 28. He says, Therefore, when you, when you, my disciples, see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. And what's his point? His point is, is that during the midst of this time is when the abomination of desolation is going to take place. He says, let the reader understand that what was spoken through the prophet Daniel. Now, what's he, what's he done? He's introduced the concept of Antichrist. And he said that during this time of persecution, hatred, uh, falling away and apostasy, false prophets misleading and deceiving many, during that time, he says, that's when the abomination of desolation is going to take place. And he says, listen, what he goes on describing Whoever's on the housetop must not go down to get the things out that are in his house. Whoever's in the field must not turn back to get his cloak. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babes in those days. But pray that your flight will not be in winter or on a Sabbath. For then, he says, then when? (laughs) Back to verse 15, when you see the abomination of desolation. Okay? Then there will be a great tribulation, such has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. Okay? If you're familiar with what he's saying right there, that's a quote right out of the book of Daniel, chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, where that's the whole culmination of the Antichrist who is being described at the end of chapter 11 in Daniel, and on into chapter 12, he's saying this is what the Antichrist is going to do. And so he's describing what's going to happen there. He goes on. Unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Okay? So what's he saying? Well, he's saying during that time that the abomination of desolation happens, right, there's going to be a great tribulation. There's going to be, it's going to be unequaled from ever of the beginning of time, right? Nor ever will. He says, but those days are going to be cut short. So what does he mean by that? What he means is, if he doesn't come and interrupt that period of time, what would happen? Well, look what he says. Lest those days have been cut short, no life would have been saved. Right? But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. So that, those, that time period, listen, it's a certain amount of time. God has decreed the amount of days. He's not going to come and make the days less. That's not what he's saying. He's, and, and, of course, some people think that this is the whole second three-and-a-half-year period, okay? I'm not convinced of that. But, but either way, if you believe that it's the three-and-a-half-year period or you don't believe it's the three-and-a-half-year period, the point is the days are going to be cut short. In other words, that time of great tribulation will not be allowed to continue to take place because if it did, nobody would survive. The chaos that's being created during that time, okay, would be enough to wipe out everyone from the face of the earth. That's what he's saying. But those days are going to be cut short, okay? Well, look what he goes on to say, verse 23. 
Then if anyone says to you, behold, here is the Christ. Now, do you remember back in verses 9 through 14 where he said, you're going to be hated by all nations. You're going to be killed. You're going to be persecuted. People are going to betray and hate one another. And look what he says in verse 11. Many false prophets will arise and mislead many. So as down here in verses 11 through 28, he's describing what's going on back there in verses 9 through 14. This is what he says. If anyone says to you, behold, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe him. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders, so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Which implies that the elect are where? There, to be deceived during that time. During what time? During the then of verse 21, which is the great tribulation, which is happening when? When you see the abomination of desolation. Okay? This is exactly what Paul is teaching in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. Exactly. And there is Paul's discourse on the Antichrist. But this is what he's saying. He's saying that day is not going to happen until the apostasy occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed. Okay? If you're familiar with those texts, you know what I'm referring to. However, Jesus goes on to describe that, yes, that's a time when there will be false Christs and false prophets who are doing great signs and wonders, so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Behold, I have told you in advance. What is Jesus saying? He's saying, here, I just told you what all the signs are, so that you won't be what? So that you won't be overtaken like a thief in the night. Like those who are just going along every other day, buying and planting, building and marrying and giving to marriage. So that you're sons of the day, so that you're paying attention to the events of the day, and you won't be misled. He goes on, for just as lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. So I'm going to end with this. Jesus is building and explaining all of these things. And then he makes this statement. Family, don't miss this. This is crystal clear. What does he say? Immediately after the tribulation of those days. When is this? After the tribulation of those days. What happens? The sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. The stars will no longer shine. And the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Listen. Then... The sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory and he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. There is my conviction why the rapture happens after the tribulation because it says right here in the scripture that Christ is going to come immediately after the tribulation, appear in the sky, and send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and gather his elect from the four winds. And as I pointed out in Mark, it says, from one end of the earth to the other end of the heavens, which implies that all of Christ's elect throughout all the ages, as 1 Thessalonians 4, 15 through 17 say, the dead in Christ will rise first, and then we who are alive and remain will be caught up to meet him in the air. Understand? So, <clears throat> the reason why I'm so sure about what I'm saying is because this is what the text of Scripture says. Now, if, if you want to argue with that, that's fine. I understand. 
But I want to challenge you, and I'll end with this, to make sure your convictions bring a solid answer for what I've just said to you is coming right out of the text of Scripture. Are you with me? Not to mention the parallels of this passage with 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5 and 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, which is what I was saying is also related here, which I was hoping to discuss this morning, but we're out of time. Uh, Let's pray. God, our Father, we thank you for the privilege of such glorious and amazing words that you have given us in Scripture. We look forward eagerly to the day, Lord, when you are going to come again in power and in glory. And, Lord, you're going to make everything right. We look forward to that day, for it is a day of deliverance for us, God. Oh, Lord, God, when we shall be with you forevermore, never again to be troubled or harmed. We thank you for the great privilege of this promise that we have, and we do hold it dear, and we eagerly look forward to that day. Even so, come, Lord Jesus, we pray. We honor and we praise you. Amen.